you started kind of talking about in the first article that you wrote. Yeah. I kind of feel like you kind of dipped your toe in the water of the things that affect you emotionally, the things that are important to you. I feel like that's where we should start. Um, right. With what matters to you. Interesting. Yeah. I think what really struck me about the ACEs side of things particularly was just that even after you'd done all of that work to make it relevant to TCKs, there was some ways in which the questions are worded that just make it difficult to access. Yeah. Um, unless you've already done the work, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, and I think that struck me as a challenge from the therapist side of things but also from the adult TCK side of things, who's often, you know those, you know, you're a TCK if lists that do yeah. the rounds. Um, Slightly uneasy because they aren't true for all TCKs. No. And it's no. something that when I, when I wrote my book, um, I want to say my first book, even though I don't have more than one published because I have like three other books I'm working on currently. <laughs> and it's um, definitely your but, first. But when it, came out I, I mean I spent a huge chunk of time in the book explaining all these different types of experiences that different TCKs have depending on what sort of job their parent has what kind of yeah. school they go to whether they move frequently or live in one country for a long time things like that and um, what I got was a lot of responses from TCKs from completely different backgrounds saying oh my gosh I never thought about what that experience was like or and, it's, and, and so that's why you get all these lists that think my experience is the TCK experience. And, yes. And, and so a lot of TCKs, yes, will resonate with your list, but a lot of TCKs won't. And then it, so therefore those lists kind of feel like gatekeeping. On, Absolutely. That's yeah. exactly the word I end up landing on around them. And I, I just, I know for me, in many ways, I was a very standard mission kid TCK even in the after story, so the after the on the field element, there would be statements thrown around like, you know you're a TCK if your wedding's attended by 10 nationalities. And mm. mine wasn't <laughs> um, because I was British and because all of my peers were a long way away and because mm -hmm. culturally on the field, um, both in terms of the mission culture and in terms of national culture, I wasn't fit. So that yeah. felt like a failure as a TCK. And I just thought, if I'm feeling yeah. this, let's assume I'm not the only weirdo in the world. This feels like gatekeeping, not just in terms of the actual in the childhood experience, but also in the after effect impact yes. part of the experience. And that drives me a bit potty. Um, because it's often the last bastion that we cling to of nice. an identity. Going, I want to identify people who share these experiences. A lot of people don't. But by saying this is you're a TCK if you're saying, well, if you don't have these things, you're not a TCK. There's this, yeah. it's not trying to be gatekeeping, but that's what it ends up doing. Yeah, absolutely. And just, just through lack of imagination. And I think that, mm -hmm. That is something a lot of us actually, against all instincts, struggle with. Is <laughs> the lack of imagination. Yeah, it's that one of the things I've I've come across in the interviews for my next book is is TCKs talking about feeling that they had been oh, your audio that just went been, that they'd been what? Sorry, um, adult TCKs feeling that they had been lied to, that they would be so great at cultural transitions and things as adults. But in reality, um, they deal with cultural transition very differently. They have a different approach to cultural transition, and especially those who were introverts or who had anxiety, um, what they, they, they would go into a cross-cultural setting and find their you know, colleagues with, a monocultural background 
getting into language and culture faster than they did and yeah. being really, really confused by that. Yeah. Um, phenomenon yeah. when they're told but I'm a TCK I'm supposed to be able to cross cultures and adapt everywhere why is this harder for me yeah. um, and yeah. it is it's a lot of this kind of sense of the the picture that we paint versus the reality absolutely um, and I think that's what strikes me around these ACES questions is I will be working with a TCK who has identified through a lot of hard work and self-reflection that they've actually endured quite a lot of trauma yes and yet that trauma doesn't show up on these questions because these questions are focused on the nuclear family Mm. and for a lot of tck's while there may well be trauma within that nuclear family for those especially those with religious backgrounds that might be framed in a whole different narrative um acceptable and expected behaviors but broadly they're often experiencing trauma on a secondary trauma level or on a collective trauma level around political conflict or economic uncertainty or um, Mm -hmm. just the stresses on a nuclear family from being away from an extended network um And so then those particular feelings of what was one of those questions? I think the one that struck me was, have you ever felt or believed you were unloved? And there was something about the wording about it that I thought that's going to, that invites people to say no. That you were were unsure that you were loved, special or important. That's right. And I think for a lot of, TCKs, and, and I was particularly curious about the mission stats that you're coming up with, because there's a psychological imperative, I believe, for children, especially children raised in what sees itself to be a, a love-based religion, um, that, of course, they're special and they're loved. If. And there's an if very often that is part of the trauma that is not reflected in some of these questions and is too shameful to own for a lot of us. And and also they are loved, special, important, secondary to. Yes, exactly. The constancy with which little sayings like, you know, God first and then family and then job, things like that will get thrown around. They sound all lovely, but... What children often hear in that is that I am less important. And, and theologically, yeah. yes, you might say that's true, but, but what a child is hearing is that my parents will put their calling before me mm-hmm. and make decisions that aren't about my welfare. Yeah. You know, and they're not going to articulate it like that, but it, but it, it does. It adds to that sense of I am not emotionally safe and secure Yeah, if well, it's not lived out with yeah ways that children are made to feel loved and special and important even deeper than that I think it sometimes goes because it's not even my needs will come third it's it it's other people's are always more important yeah so that has a different effect on us developmentally I think where we're not kind Mm. of conscious of where we are on the queue and we'll be seen to eventually which is a thing in and of itself right but when people are being raised in families in high stress situations, the stresses and the needs of the people around them are always perceived as more important because they're life and death, either on an eternal level or on a physical level. Um, yeah. And, and that so, certainly shows up for the mission sector and for the humanitarian sector. Yeah. But it's also true to a different extent in the diplomatic sector, in the international yes. business sector, where yeah. work is yeah. so intrusive into family life. And, and I think this is true in the mission sector to a degree too these days with internet. We have a work day and then we're on meetings or we're on Zoom in the evening as well. Like it's very hard to carve time away for the family. But in an international business setting, in a diplomatic setting, there really is a pressure to not do that, to not carve time away for family because that will detract from your career. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I have fam- friends in Australia saying that, that if they're the one doing the school pickup, then they're not advancing in their career the way they should because they're actually leaving on time each day. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and in the international world where their company is pouring so much money into an overseas assignment, that pressure is, is so much more. The number of people who are working 80 hours a week as a minimum in the international Whoa. world was phenomenal. That was I mean, the I don't know how you I, don't grow up with a sense that you're not actually high up on the priority list. Yeah, then. exactly. And, and, and I think it's very difficult for people when they're faced with a question like that on an ACES thing to even acknowledge that because what they often see is parents who are trying really hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they see children are so perceptive about the intention of the parent. Yes. And that they want to the kind believe of the best. They want to know, they want to believe they love. And they're often right. They don't always feel it. They're yeah. often right that the parent yes. is loving them. But yes. the significant part is feeling it and I think it's very very difficult for people to be able to validate their experience of a situation when they can't back it up factually and I think that's where a lot of trauma stuff falls down is because Mm. these questions are, are inevitably really because they're trying to measure something trying to measure what's actually happened and mm-hmm. what we know about, for example, Gabor Mate's work on trauma is, frankly, that's almost irrelevant. <laughs> it's what was yes. perceived to have happened. Yes. Um, and that, that can fall through the gaps for TCKs mm-hmm. when they're trying to understand why they are the way they are in their adult life. Um, why there's maybe... When that perception gap can be exacerbated by cultural difference. Yes. And, yes. you know, when you have, um, when you're trying to fit in with kids at school and those kids are in a, of a different culture, um, you've just arrived in a new country or in an, into a new international community. And, you know, like you, I was a minority culture within an international community or I also attended a local school as an international. And there are things you do to try to keep up and try to blend in but you don't always understand the undercurrents, even speaking your own language, let alone when you're using a second or third acquired language um, culturally. And and that can impact those those perceptions of what's going on as opposed to what's really going on. And feeling whether you have a sense of belonging and acceptance and friendship or not, there can be a big gap between the reality of that and your perception of that Especially when there are, you know, culture differences involved. Yes. And, and what you're saying there about language is another thing that I think is missing on a lot of these ACE things is there's, there's no acknowledgement of um, identity or national identity or language trauma um, mm-hmm. where perhaps Koreans are actively discouraged from speaking Korean in an international boarding school setting or school setting where new arrivals are told they need to speak only English, even though they have none, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. to settle in quicker. And their peers are discouraged from because their peers can translate, right? They'll often find a third language that they can really try and facilitate in, and they're actively discouraged, sometimes through sort of disciplinary, um, through the school, from actually facilitating that for the child what that does to a brain around their own language and their own culture mm. and, and introducing a sort of hierarchy, it's huge. We, we actually asked additional questions that we haven't mm. processed the data, let alone really yeah. data on. Yeah, I'm excited. Because we're like, there's, there's more out there. Yeah. Um, I'm currently working on the white paper on the individual ACE factors. Um, some of that data has actually been released in certain venues, but not all of it. So we're, we're getting that one ready, hopefully, for the end of the year. The next year I'm going to go, here's everything else that we haven't done yet. But most of that we put in there just to, let's just see what happens. We don't have a particular hypothesis. It's kind of why we're leaving it for last. Yeah, it's a very sort of grounded you know, data approach. Just get the data yeah, yeah. and then figure it out. Yeah, like we, we don't really know what's going to happen. We It was kind of more of a let's just see what happens. What, what numbers we get um, as a sort of first stab at, well, what should we do next time or what further research 
does this, like which areas does this show us we should be looking at? One of those questions was about, I was also trying to work out how to craft questions that are not super ridiculously intricate, like because you can't yeah, do everything at once. Really hard. There was a question though about um, a language that you had your core friendships in. Mm. So were, was your core peer friendships with people who spoke a language you were fluent in? Or most was most of most in the language I'm fluently in, fluent in, most in the language I was comfortable in, most in the language I was uncomfortable in, things like that. Um, so asking about that kind of and and we we switched it, but we had two two questions. So one about the majority of the people you spent time with, and then your closest friends. Right. Because often Already having a look at that, there's a bit of a gap there, right? So you might have a chunk of people who are saying that I spent most of my time in a language I was not comfortable in, but my closest friends, you know, did a, a fluency of language. Yeah. Right? So which yeah. I think to me is one of those things about why kids need to be allowed to speak their languages everywhere mm-hmm. because it's helping them build close friendships because how can you explain the deepest parts of who you are in a language that you're uncomfortable in yet? You don't have the vocabulary to yeah. explain yourself and to have a close and deep friendship. Yeah. How can you have that acceptance and supportive relationship without the language to back it up? Yes, we want to encourage growth of language, but we shouldn't be cutting kids off from friendship to do it. No, and and we're misunderstanding the importance of fluency in being able to be who we are. These kids are already trying to figure out if they're funny or they're clever or they're quick. And to try and do that in a language that you're not fluent in, you lose your personality. And if you lose your personality, the friendships you're making aren't even with your personality anymore. They're with a, a... the sort of makeshift model that you, you're trying to construct. So that that in itself can create massive imposter syndrome, right? It's like people are only friends with me because of it's the construct. I've had a relationship with them in, in Mandarin Chinese, but in a different group of friends, it was in English. And so I knew what they who they were in two languages. Right. And they were two very different people in those two languages. Yeah. Yeah. And I know how people in that English speaking group treated them. And yeah. perceived them because of how they presented in English versus yeah. who I knew them to be yeah. in Mandarin Chinese. And I can and do that in accents. So goodness knows what that's like across languages. You yeah. know, I can, I'm a different personality with an American accent than I am with an English. Um, and, and that, like, I remember listening to some of these people talking about her behind her back and, and understanding how they saw her and realising you don't even know she has a law degree she's smarter than the three of you put together and you just but you don't know no she's bilingual and you're not like yeah and and that kind of but that's what kids I mean a few years later I was relief teaching in international school and I'm watching these Korean kids doing exactly that being this toned down version of themselves because it was a school an English only school that wouldn't allow them to it did allow them thankfully (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to to use Korean in like the lunchroom and stuff, just in, but it was English only in the classrooms, and I just think that yeah, this this toned down, this washed out version of a child where I'm like I don't know your personality, yeah, and you to half of your classmates, yeah, and it's really sad, and yeah, what really made me the most sad was like I know there's a couple of brilliant kids here who are getting C's because they're studying in the wrong language yeah and yeah. they're and not going to be enough in either well. language by the end of it yeah um or their level of intelligence yeah absolutely and there's trauma there I think there's there's trauma yes. there that is not ever going to be included thus far maybe maybe you'll do a rewrite of the aces for tck's but um they're not going to say, talk about the educational trauma of, mm-hmm. oh, look, you've got this enormous privilege of studying in international schools. Oh, by the way, you'll never be able to go to university in Korea because you've yep. lost your language. <laughs> so, yep. 
good luck in America <laughs> and you know, where you can work really really hard to try and play with the visas and get the green card and get the citizenship oh. and that is it now and then you'll marry somebody American which again wonderful but then you'll have two weddings in two different continents then that's your life now enjoy all because of these early early decisions that are not intrinsically bad but nobody's really no. thought through the impact it's um, it's that it's it's the no one's thought about what happens as we make this decision here what happens as a result of this decision five years later 10 years later 20 years later one yeah. of the most popular seminars I did especially in China was um the impact of cross-cultural education on family dynamics oh, for exactly yeah. this right yeah. for parents who have their kids in international school and it's already been a few years in most cases or five years or ten years and all of these impacts have come out that didn't just never occur to them. And it's too late now. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Like we need to understand what's Don't happening. Don't you dare blame the child. That's <laughs> where I'm sitting as the therapist. The crux of it is two sides of the coin, right? Like for parents, yeah. they need to accept the responsibility that you made this choice, not your child. It yeah. is not their fault. Yep. Even though you didn't, didn't expect these consequences to happen, like you chose this for them. Yeah. Yeah. But the other side of that is you didn't expect these consequences and you were allowed to feel grief for yeah. the family that you don't have. Absolutely. And that you didn't and, and the future that is now ahead of you that wasn't what you had planned for yourself. You are allowed to grieve that. And it actually is important to grieve that so you don't take yes. it out on your child. <laughs> and bringing um, that background to the aces again, I think there's yeah. such an important thing around wording where it becomes no blame questions. Yes. You, talking about grief there for that grief to be productive it really does have to include some element of I mean blame big fan of blame a portion responsibility where it's due <laughs> very very cathartic <laughs> very very healthy however sometimes the need to do that or the reality of that actually locks us out from even feeling the feeling so having mm. the ability to be able to express pain in a no blame way my parents yes. loved me in ways that hurt me <laughs> <laughs> that's a no blame statement yeah. um this situation has happened because of choices that I made or you made or we made yeah. as a family yeah we didn't intend it to hurt, turn out this way but yeah. it has and it's painful yeah. for us yeah which is why a statement such as I felt unloved is so much more accessible than yes. I, I maybe felt unsafe actually or I felt mm unless the unsafe can be broadened out to because of my context you know as soon as we say to ourselves my family made me feel unsafe we that's big, shut that big step yeah that's unless we're already in therapy unless we're already getting lots of support unless we've already done a lot of work mm. unless perhaps relationships have been restored later or we've gone no contact actually if things are mm. Um, so that we've created some kind of safety later on to be able to readdress yeah. the lack of safety um, and, and it's part of why the ACE framework is so helpful is it has been developed over a long period of time with, with that in mind. Like, yeah. The questions are, are very carefully worded to have clear yes or no answers that yeah. don't require too much, well, does this count, does this not count, Yeah. Um, yeah. as much as possible with what are inherently difficult things to think about and to consider yeah. and to feel. It's, it's very heavy things we're talking about. Um, it is. But they've been worded very carefully to, to make it as easy as possible to give an answer to the question. Yeah. Um, defining what they mean and putting. But there is so much that is not in that, which is why we asked additional questions about um, what you context in terms of poverty or violence um whether that's armed conflict or that's just person-to-person -person violence um yeah. break-ins and and um what's the word home invasions or um uh armed robbery in places where you would normally be even if you weren't there at the time like your communities yeah. You know, the, the yeah. mall that you go to and the school that you go to, even if you're not there, that's. Yeah. Um, 
uh, severe traffic accidents. I know a lot of kids who've grown up in places where they see serious traffic accidents regularly. They see just traumatic injury and even death on the road on their way to school. And that's, that is something that they have personally experienced multiple times. So those kind of things that are just not included in the NACE inventory, but are clearly have a deep impact. Yes. Uh, and so trying to ask those kind of questions and see, well, how prevalent is that when it's not just an anecdotal, I know people who, but across a wide spectrum and asking yeah. those kind of questions and then seeing is it different depending on, um, and, and with prim- preliminary looking at it, awesome things like um, armed conflict was much more common in diplomat kids for example to be witnessed by diplomat kids and yeah yeah and poverty was more common to be witnessed by mission kids and NGO kids which makes sense obviously yeah but you know it's mostly just let's just get a a toe in the water to start thinking about these kind of things and move towards what what would it look like to have a broader inventory of potential additional traumas Mm-hmm. that go with an international childhood yeah yeah one thing that comes to yeah, mind the long-term goal is absolutely to it's just inclusive then mm-hmm. and and being able to name things as traumatic there's so much of what you've described that is so normalized and actually if I think about my own traumas that I've encountered in my own story um it's going to be difficult to pull out the ones that perhaps sound more traumatic um, as traumatic, because if there's a collective experience, an awful lot of the time the trauma is absorbed through mm-hmm. shared recognition yes. of the challenge. But yes. then there are more private, smaller traumas. And I yeah. do smaller in inverted commas here. Um, <laughs> that would not be recognized by the community, such because as- Because they're not shared and Because they're not about. shared and they're not um, recognized. So- yes, um, Yeah, so just, so that I'm thinking about sexual trauma on a broader scale, for instance, than attack or assault. So around gender-based um, narratives, around being highly sexualized as a young child, um, marriage proposals from the age of five, um, mm. being approached by strange men in the street, etc., being treated like a sexual object, being treated as a dangerous sexual object. Um, those have a, an accumulative effect on an individual psyche that has a huge impact on sexual identity, yes. but is not assault. And it yes. is accepted as... Yes. Of course, that's going to happen. You're in that part of the world. Um, But depending on the context you're in as well, it might actually be reinforced. So you might have that in your host country majority culture, but you might also have that in your um, expatriate community culture um, if it's very patriarchal, for instance. And that's not going to be put on a questionnaire. And yet I run into that quite a lot with clients. (laughs) Yeah. Um, No, I completely know what you're talking about. Um, and it's hard to validate that yes how incident people around you validate it whether they shared it with you or they can immediately go yes that is something that is bad that's wrong that needs to be processed there's support yeah but those little things that niggle and great that aren't big enough to say something or that you're not sure should be said. And when these sort of little minor mm-hmm. assaults on our sense of identity and self and sexual identity go un... And when they go unresponded to, mm-hmm. uh, when our emotions in general are not regulated and responded to, the question inside is like, what does anyone want to hear? Do I have anyone to ask the question to? If this is okay or normal, I just, I'm told, I'm taught to just accept whatever comes. And yeah, it, it, it's insidious in that way, right? Yeah, yeah. 
And so it's very hard at that point, like the ACEs is just 10 questions, very broad, but very Absolutely. clear. Yes. Well, we're talking about are things that are much more difficult to put a yes or no to, to yeah. put a clear definition around. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important to try because we know it has had an impact on so many people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and actually and the stories that we get, um, like with the survey, about 20% 20 20 of people left comments. We had an optional comment section. Yeah. And half of them wrote more stories about additional trauma because they had stories that they wanted to share. Yeah. And a lot of them because they had a place that, that felt validated. Having yeah. gone through those questions, they're like, okay, so this thing that happened to me, there's a place that I can share that story Absolutely. that that is recognised. Um, and a lot of them were saying secondary trauma was huge, but there was yes. no way to discuss that where it didn't happen to me, um, I didn't see it happen, I heard about it. It happened to There's a friend a lot of, of storytelling in the expatriate yes. community and we hear and about rape and kidnapping and snake bites and, yeah. But it's giving you the sense that the, the place I live is not safe for me. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and it, you hear a kid fell off a trampoline and had to get medivaced to another country and... That's not just hearing a kid broke their wrist. You know it's not life or death. The trauma in that is knowing they're going to be separated from at least one of their parents for a good six-week yeah. period. And that's terrifying to a child. And, and so there's a context for a TCK when they're experiencing these smaller traumas like injury that has a much broader context. An undertone to it. Of, absolutely of this accumulated trauma absolutely and so in the same way that any child in any context might feel unable to disclose sexual assault for instance that's not unusual we know the child's psyche is built that way um and it's a it's a it's a well-worn coping strategy um however if that child is also aware that disclosure could rip them from their home rip their their, fam, their parents career apart that's an extra weight that the tck is carrying that a non-tck just isn't um, mm -hmm. if i disclose this to my parent i'm risking all of my familial relationships but i'm not risking my house <laughs> i mean okay yeah. sure in some contexts actually especially if it's a family member involved yes you are but but your country your country and everyone you know and exactly. every every place that you know exactly so even when we're talking about the traumas we've got to hold mm. this context of ramification in mind i think yes um, oh that's a great phrase context of ramification oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> we'll use that one <laughs> well it's exactly what we're what the the weight of this is is it's yeah. not just the event it's what that could mean yeah. for everything. Absolutely, absolutely. And going back to what you were saying about international schools as well, I've worked with an, a couple of people now who don't actually have a first language anymore. Mm. They have mm, very high fluency, but they wouldn't consider themselves fluent in a few different languages. And yeah. part of their language trauma isn't just the loss of having a that's my language one but it's also the critique from parents at home who are watching their child lose fluency in their mm. familial language and feel really scared about that and so correct them all the time as you do as yeah. a loving parent when you want your child to learn something however <laughs> Um, the impact there then, yes, it's a language thing, it's an international school thing, but it's also then a family context thing that has reverberations about your family relationships forever. Mm -hmm. yes, Are you going to settle in that country if you feel like your language skills aren't good enough? Just mm -hmm. not. And then there'll be no grace for that. Yeah. Because yeah. it can be extremely difficult, extremely painful to watch um, a foreign citizen with a different skin colour to you be fawned over for the small amount they speak. Yeah. And you're corrected for speaking the same amount. Yeah, exactly. For getting right. your articles wrong or missing a bit of vocabulary here and there. Mm. And, and I remember going failed. around markets in China with a Korean friend 
and um, we spoke the same amount of Chinese and I got way more compliments than she did, Yeah, even though it was an acquired language for both of us. Yeah, yeah. And I think something that we aren't always great at as TCKs is recognising both our pain in those situations, but also our privilege in those situations. So like you were saying earlier, my story is the story. I'm valued for what I know abroad. I am not valued for what I know at home. And then that becomes an issue in and of itself. Yes. And repatriation. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And that's probably a whole different discussion, really. (laughs) What surprised you most or or jumped out to you the most when you were doing trying to work within the confines of the ACES questions? Or how carefully these questions have been worded, right? Because they've got very clear boundaries on them, which makes it easier to answer them. Yeah which has a very great purpose, right? Because when you're asking these kind of questions, you want to make it so people can say yes or no and not have to hum and har and go through their whole background and, like, stay in this uncomfortable place for ages. Right. However, there's just so much that, well, if it doesn't fit that box but it's something, then what? And, and I mean, our main solution for that was to not just do an ACE questionnaire. The questions were woven in and out, not in the standard order. We added additional things. So the the original questionnaire um, asked about violence towards your mother or stepmother. We added an additional question about the father and stepfather. Um, It asks about sexual abuse that is perpetrated by an adult or a child at least five years older than you. So we added an additional question about child-to-child sexual abuse and an additional question about grooming behaviour that didn't quite raised to the level of sexual assault as described in the ACE um, questionnaire. So we wanted to try and capture what wasn't in the ACEs that people would go, well, I don't fit this. We wanted to be able to say, well, here's where you do, here's where that trauma does have a place to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was part of the, 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 the trick in working with it was to say, well, what do we do with the people who don't? fit with what's been given here but also the the difficulty was to stop adding everything Mm. and not make it like a three hour long questionnaire asking all the questions um and just sort of like I said dip our dip our toes in the water of a few different areas that we would like to see Mm -hmm. where needs are and where there's interesting information worth mining in more depth later yeah Um, just mostly wanted to make sure that something was done. Let, let's start somewhere. Yeah. We can mess around with how to put it together, but at some point we've got to start somewhere and hopefully we won't be the only ones doing this and we can be a springboard for others and, and I mean, we're going to keep doing. <laughs> we're going to keep doing more research and, and providing information to people, but um, we hope we won't be the only ones. So... No, and and I think that's what you've done so beautifully is stretch stretch the existing resource um, enough that it feels like it makes much more sense um, Mm. to TCKs, um, but you've also kept it a recognisable resource that Mm. is just so useful for people when they're looking to understand their experience and to feel like it's validated on a broader broader stage, actually, on a research yeah. level, rather than pure anecdotal or I'm so adapted to TCKs that there's no comparative basis anymore. Um, yeah, like so hard, right? To to yeah. to walk that line in between. Um, yeah. But it's important to be able to have that basis. And and for me, it was having the demographic categories that make sense to TCKs that we could run the stats through. Um, Like being able to look at, okay, well, which kind of, why was your family globally mobile and what kind of school did you go to? What what type of education did you have? How many years did you spend overseas? And 
how often did you move and how many countries did you live in? Those kind of questions that are the bread and butter of TCK introductions, you know, Absolutely. those questions that are That's how we so common to us and yeah. not part of normal conversation maybe in in your passport country. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that, that sense of we can use, we can combine this ACE research that comes from a different setting with the way that we see identity and self and movement and put them together and um yeah that that's and that's honestly where we found some of our most interesting insights like finding that at a certain level of mobility the the rate of high-risk ACE scores went through the roof yeah but like one in five TCKs had a high-risk ACE score but among those who had extreme locational house mobility it was one in three so I feel like that's for me, the most important, maybe important is the wrong word, uh, most interesting, most helpful use of this data is looking at how it applies to the categories that make sense to us. And to me, that really hits a nerve because I hear a certain amount in the TCK and expatriate community, a kind of um, hierarchy of mobility frequency mm. where the real tck's the real expats are the hardcore big movers um and and the rest of us are kind of just mucking about a bit flip-flopping between a few cultures and and i don't know if you found this in the community as well but there can be a bit of competitiveness but how many places <laughs> have you been to oh, yes. how many moves before absolutely yeah. and i think what you're doing is really challenging that and kind of going hey <laughs> this might not be the ideal guys <laughs> actually there is an impact on on your kids um this doesn't necessarily simply increase their adaptability and their exposure mm. to, to amazing Oh, I was, also I was just risk. working on um I was just working on some data today in a, a blog post I was writing and uh it was 31% of international school students who took our survey um were moving locations about two years on average, about every two years throughout their entire childhood. And this is why I'm working with relational trauma in sessions because you can't that's feel not long secure. enough to complete it's not long enough to complete the transition no and, and it's not long enough and a big chunk settle. of those I mean, half of those that was way more than you know yeah, yeah it's that's huge and and i'd love to see a shift in the narrative actually that kind of stops mm. almost glamorizing in some ways and even where it's not outright yes. glamorizing this kind of a yeah, there's a sort of hardcore versus softies kind of yes. framework, mental framework. Um, I think it's something that a lot of humanity has done for a long time, that instead of engaging with trauma, we cover it over with this hard-heartedness of, well, this is what it means to be strong, this is what it means to be hardcore, this is what it means to be whatever we label it, um, the people who have the most difficulty revel in it. Well, and and I think what I see us doing there. This is what makes us who we are. This makes us wrong. And we have to. I mean, that in itself is a coping strategy. It's it's making a virtue out of a necessity. Um, Exactly. And it's purest form, really. And, And I think that's been troubling me for a few years, that we're actually taking what our trauma response is high vigilance, high adaptability, high uh, the ability to appease in relationships. These are trauma responses and we're turning them into yes. characteristics and strength. I was talking about that adaptability and appeasing thing to a group of parents and, and care providers about how what we're really talking about. I mean, as explained, like if you're a TCK in this situation, you're going to do these things. Yeah. Not because you are a cross-cultural savant, but because you're trying to fit in because you don't want to stand out and you don't want to be teased. It is a fear and anxiety reaction. It's a coping strategy. Yeah. So, yeah. yes, you may learn to become quite adaptable, 
but you learn that out of a place of fear and anxiety and you saw yeah. these light bulbs go on of oh that makes sense it didn't, I'd never been able to connect the anxiety to the adaptability like yeah. I can see that now yeah and that's the particular skill you're carrying is to be able to communicate that in a really accessible way I think <laughs> I'm sitting in the place of like just stop doing it <laughs> stop <laughs> celebrating these because we use this this narrative of chameleon mm-hmm. constantly and it, it just it, it's like nobody oh, this is me getting on my high horse that's right tone it down Rachel it feels frustrating <laughs> to me that mean. we've chosen a highly adaptive terrified creature <laughs> as our mascot because a chameleon is only adapting so effectively because they're trying not to get eaten. And another massive feature of the is it's rotating eyeballs, and that's what we do in all our social situations. I mean, it's it's really appropriate. <laughs> it works, but it's not uh, a kind it's a of response. But it's not what people are it's, going for. It's not for something me. I really want to put on my flag, actually, of self identity. And and this mm. is where I end up working with people a lot, trying to get behind the trauma of like what color would you like to be what environment would make you feel safe what if we take the comedians yes. to the environment they'd like to be in <laughs> rather mm-hmm. than just expect them to keep adapting because in, in relational terms it's a nightmare we just adapt yes. constantly and we'll adapt yes. to domestic abuse and we'll adapt yes. to yes um, so many stories about that. conflict tolerance so we'll just yep. leg it um, and we'll adapt to all sorts of situations apart yeah. from intimacy. Yeah. Never working out who we are, yeah. what we want, yeah. what we need. Yeah, yeah. And for a lot of adults, they're trying to figure out what secure looks like in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 70s. Yes. yes. And that's really, really hard. It's totally possible. It's totally possible to work with the impact of trauma, but it is so much harder (laughs) to do for yourself later what your environment should have facilitated at a younger age. Yes. And what bothers me the most is that often these kids are coming out of families where parents were so loving and doing their best and no one told them anything, right? A few resources, a little bit of actual real information instead of TCKs are great. Look at them. Yeah, exactly. Worked wonders for yeah. thousands of families. But we, we cover yeah. it up with everything's great. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't look behind the curtain. Yeah. Well, and because very much on the field, the kids are adapting. They are in adaptation mode. It's later on. You know, the number of times I've, yeah, and you can see in the anxious eyes of a parent who really cares for their child, you know, my kid seems to be adapting really well. Phew, that's a great relief. And I'm sitting there going, wait till they're 30, just just wait for it. And that's not to say at 30, they're going to fall apart, but at 30, they're going to start figuring out who they are. And that is glorious, but it ain't tidy. And I was we've got say, to reframe pretty. it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, we've got to reframe that as now they're melting down to this is what it would have been nice if we could have done at two, at three, at four, at 15. Um, yeah. It's just a delayed reaction. How many TCKs needed to go through teenage rebellion as teenagers? And yeah. because they didn't get to go through that boundary stretching phase yeah. where they found out well, what do I want to do myself? Like, how do I find out what's me and what's my surroundings and what's the people that are around me? How do I stop people pleasing and work out what pleases me? And if they had done that in a safe environment with their family, with a safe community around them and worked some of that stuff out before they went out on their own, totally different story. Absolutely. But instead you get a community of kids who have all learned to adapt to what's around them and Mm -hmm. please people around them. So even their acts of rebellion are usually acts of adapting and fitting in, you know? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, it's a complicated business being a TCK, but also, I mean, like you're saying, you know, information, resources to parents would make all the difference. 
where I would push that even further is we've got to start. One of the things I struggle with a lot around even just defining TCKs is the minimal place in that definition that the organization of culture of their sending organization seems to play yes. in that. For me, that's one of the cultures in the mix. And we don't talk about that as much. Um, so even if, for me, even if the parents are resourced and aware, they might be swimming upstream in their expatriate culture and yes. they need better support. They need more space to prioritize their kids' well-being, for instance. They need more breath and, and more um, headspace themselves. If you put well-meaning, very loving parents under pressure, they go into survival mode too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we know that these are expatriate assignments are usually quite high-pressured assignments. Um, it's not all fun and games. And, and I think this shows up in the fact that in the individualised factors, parental mental health, well, yeah. it's a household adult, but usually yeah. that means a parent, yeah. a parent who had depression, another mental illness or attempted suicide, double the rate in TCKs Absolutely. than in the Americans in the other Absolutely. study. I'm, I'm about to be diving in more deeply to this and looking at different studies in different countries and things like that. Yeah. But, um, I mean... When you look at the specific factors that are high in the TCKs, mostly I think it reflects on the stress that parents are under, right? Absolutely. Emotional abuse, emotional neglect, parental mental illness. Parents are under so much pressure and stress. Yeah. That Absolutely. one of the biggest things we can do for kids is to make sure parents have access to mental health support and basic parenting and TCK training. Yeah. Not. Yeah. TCK training the company, but just training about TCKs so they can understand and, and parent their family effectively. Um, yeah. But doesn't yeah. exist in most sectors. And that's an issue with the questioning as well, to a certain extent, because it requires a, an adult child to recognize what their parents' behavior was as, because very often in their context abroad, they're not diagnosed necessarily with anything as clear cut as a mental health challenge the numbers that are those born right. before 1960 were saying that they had yeah. a parent with mental illness yeah like that's yeah. gotta be so the numbers are just, even bigger than what are represented they're, right? they're, they're yeah. going up with age i yeah. think it was over 40 percent in um the over like post 90s what I would love to see in terms of part of the support package for parents is that they're doing the deep emotional story work I'm yes. doing with their kids decades later. They need to do that. They need to when, do that because yeah. they're often bringing unresolved needs to even why they are abroad. So they might be running away from family situations that are yes. really challenging um, and yet telling a narrative of this is what I want instead. And for a child looking on, that can be very mixed messages, very confusing. Um, the, the parent has chosen very often a more complicated life. It'd be great if there was a narrative to explain that because that has consequences for their children. And if they could be at peace with that narrative and communicate mm. it really well. Um, but very often they just, it, it isn't, it can, and it can just communicate to the children I'm working with later that their parents wanted adventure, wanted something more interesting than staying at home looking after the kids mm -hmm. having a normal job. And that just contributes to their sense of not being important enough. And if parents could have a well-framed, well-thought-out understanding of themselves and why they're doing this, why they're making these choices for their family, um, not to change their mind necessarily, mm -hmm. although for some people it might. It um, might, but that's not the point. The point is to the point. explain to their kids exactly. the narrative of their story, of, of their family. Exactly. What is our family narrative? And give them that space to then think through, what do I want my family narrative to be? Let's yes. not just assume my children are going to share my understanding. How do I want to facilitate? How do I want my child to talk about their family life in 20 years' time? Right, let's do that now then. <laughs> and just create that space to think ahead through those impacts you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And I think just that creating space, full yeah. stop, yeah. is something so many yeah. families need. Yeah. Um, 
I, I honestly, the more of this work I do, the more I feel like there should be ending agencies, regardless of the sector, whether it's an international business, whether it's a, an actual government sending military, sending foreign service, um, whether it's a charity or an NGO, whether it's a mission organisation, whether it's an international school that's bringing people to them, whoever it is that's, that's causing this family mobility has a responsibility because we know <laughs> that it is causing long-term wellbeing problems for a large mm. percentage of these children. Yeah. And so I really feel that it is incumbent on these organisations to do something about it. When, when the investment in preventive care is so small, it should be a requirement mm -hmm. and yet it's overlooked because they just don't see kids' welfare as important. That's the bottom line. See, I wonder if it's so much that or if it's often these agencies are operating in a survival mode. They just need bodies on the ground to continue their goals and objectives. And if those bodies on the ground want to reproduce, fine. But it's very often that's seen as a, that's seen as a private matter. That's seen as an individual decision, and they're not necessarily educating the people going abroad about what the impact of that is going to be. And yet they've also cut their budgets over the last right. ten years for providing. <laughs> that feels very backward. <laughs> oh, a, lot of, a lot of organizations have cut budgets for family support um is that because they'll do things that they used to have a training course that they would give provided people and now they just provide them a budget to do with what they will and oh if your family going abroad oh and you don't know that there's things that you should know why wouldn't you just use that money to like bring your pet with you or something that's something yeah. your family need like yeah it's yeah. just completely backwards but yeah or their information is completely out of date or it's the very being a TCK is great or yeah. it's got nothing to do with any of that. It's career-based yeah. advice. Yeah. Um, but that creating space for, very backwards. for mental well-being of their staff, if that, if they did that, of the employee and the employee, employee spouse, if they'd got that right alone and forget about the TCK stuff, yeah. that would be a huge step forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I honestly think that if parents understood the impact this has on their kids long term, they would be way more invested in getting it right. So often parents forget about the oxygen mask principle that they need to look after themselves in order to look after their kids. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's. Yeah, we can't we can't ignore the caregivers, whether those are staff or parents. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I've heard really difficult stories of boarding school that isn't because of the, I mean, that's obviously a factor, it's distance from parents, but it's often just high turnover of, of staff mm -hmm. and insecurity of knowing what the rules are going to be from month to month and food insecurity yeah. um, because they're underfunded institutions and, 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 um, yes. and that's all about the, the lack of support. For the staff and the lack of strategic thinking about how do we want these kids to feel when they leave the field <laughs> we've got to kind of work backwards I think a little bit do we want this kid to have a positive idea about this country they're growing up in okay how do we protect them how do we enhance their experiences here um, do we want them to have a positive experience of their passport country maybe stop telling them everybody there is stupid like let's figure that one out let's work backwards <laughs> from that we want them to feel confident in their educational choices okay what can we do for that and what we're, we're just I think there's so much survival moding and so much yes. well they seem fine now well they seem fine now well they seem fine now and that's where our adaptability as TCKs really works against us yes because of course we seem fine now that's our job Mm -hmm. uh, lots to still be done but so these much. aces really highlight an awful lot I think what you've what you've pulled up in your research really highlights a lot of where that work needs to be done where that validating needs to be happening. yeah and and I hope or what we're already getting back is that it's giving ammunition to people who've been banging this drum for years to go okay here's the numbers it's not just me 
And it's not just out there somewhere. It's happening everywhere. It's happening in mission organisations. It's happening in international schools. It's happening in homeschooled kids. Like no one is exempt from this. Um, It's not out there. It's here in, in, for us where we are. Um, It didn't just happen in the sixties and seventies. It's happening now. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because we've done all these different kind of demographics to prove that it's across the board, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And with very few exceptions, actually, uh, no matter how you crunch the numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, we've, we've had a couple of really positive responses already. Like just a couple of weeks ago we heard from someone um, who just wasn't supposed to be in a child protection space at that time, but was was talking to someone who they were, as a family, making a decision about where they would be moving next. And they had been reading the white paper and some of the stuff we'd been doing. I think they'd just been to one of our workshops. And so this person, in talking to these parents, said, well, how will each place impact your kids? And they went, oh. And then they talked through, well, what would friendship building be like and well, if we went to this location, we'd only be there for two years and we'd have to move again. And if we went to this place, there wouldn't be any kids their age. So I guess this place is one that's best for our kids. Well, I guess that makes it an easy choice then. And they oh said, gosh. this is the first time anyone has suggested that we consider our kids' welfare in this. This is where the adaptability starts, isn't it? You didn't have to like um and ah about it. Just but adapting to decisions that have been made without them being looped in. And that's been yes. an expectation. They, they had three options, all of which were fine options. One of those options was clearly better for their kids than the others. But until that moment, no one had, cons- had, had suggested that they consider their kids' welfare to make that decision. Yeah, your white paper they, just changed well, I'm that really glad kids, they got those back kids' lives. Yeah. Um, but it also, but the reason they brought it to us is they said that that was a real alert to them that that this is an easy thing to change in how we process people in making these moves. Yeah. That we through child welfare. And they were able to bring in some of the stats and some of the stuff about pieces and, and how having belonging in high school is important and how these relationships are important. And um yeah. To convince the parents that thinking about child welfare is actually an important thing in decision making as part of, you know, being wise and making good long term decisions. And it was, it was this little reflection of how this data can be used very practically on the ground to change the course of a family's life. Yeah. Uh, That was so meaningful to me. And I hope that there's going to be dozens or more of, of families whose trajectories changed because someone went, hey, Let's consider child welfare and not just assume that kids will adapt everywhere. Absolutely. Before you get into a place and your kids are in trouble, let's just never have that happen in the first place because someone asked that question up front. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, just in asking that question, you are changing mm. a culture because you are suggesting yes. that that matters. And yes. once it's asked, it's really hard to argue with. Actually, it's irrelevant. So you're really leading a different tone. You're reframing something very, very deliberately just by asking mm-hmm. the question. And, and in terms family, of, yeah. Anytime someone asks them for advice, you know they're going to put that question into the mix. Yeah. yeah. That's the sort of thing that changes culture on a ground very level. Very organically, actually, as well. Grassroots. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in terms of the impact of this research, in terms of my client work, it's just validating it's just Mm. so so validating because so many people I work with one of the biggest barriers to even doing the work that they want to do in exploring their stories and figuring out what the challenges they're dealing with now is trying to make it make sense that they have the challenges they're dealing with now because the longer we sit in a space of well I shouldn't (laughs) this should be fine, <laughs> why am I so weird, um, the longer we're not actually changing things for ourselves in a really positive way. So having that validation um, beyond my voice, just kind of going, of course this was hard for you. Can you hear your story? <laughs> Can you hear your experiences? That 
that's really, really important to, have, you're to be one able of to give that permission. 40% of TCKs who experienced this, you're one of 60% of TCKs yeah. who went through this, you know, yeah. being able yeah. to just stand with the crowd in that respect. Yes. Like, this yeah. is normal. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you for your time. Um, <laughs> uh, talking through this. I just always love talking to you. Oh, it's brilliant. Talk and it's best. lovely to feel like, yeah, you can end up feeling quite solo in this work. And it's so important mm -hmm. to remember that there's this whole group of people kind of all wanting more for TCKs. Mm. Yes. Um, and that's really encouraging. And that's really important as well in terms of the TCKs I work with. There's often such a sense of isolation and nobody cares and nobody's interested to actually go, actually, <laughs> there's a huge number of people out there really batting on your team.